Jennifer to Sunday School. So welcome. Let me get adjusted to this mic. Um, how's everyone feeling today? Are y'all doing well? It's, it's Sunday, it's beautiful outside, right? So we had a little bit of traffic. Did anyone have a little hiccups this morning? I actually burned my chin with my iron, like when I was making my hair all fancy. And um, I was like, really? Is this the way the day's gonna go? And then I was like, uh, let's change our focus on that. Like, how can we see the glass half full? And it was like, well, it's on my chin, and I have makeup, and I can kind of hide it, right? And I was like, this is not that bad. Like, you have to, we have to really kind of tune in and, and, and see light and humor in the situations. Um, so yeah, that was, that was pretty funny. Um, so before we get started, I want y'all to, well, actually, let me introduce myself, right? Uh, thank you so much for that warm intro, Kristen. That was beautiful, and um, it's always such an interesting situation to feel the sensations when you're being introduced through the eyes of someone else, right, instead of the way you see yourself. So um, I love that so much, thank you. So my name is Jennifer Knott, H-N-A-T. It's pronounced Knott, it's not a typo, even though everybody who looks at it thinks it is. Um, I am a registered dietitian nutritionist and mindful eating expert. And I'm actually um, becoming an intuitive eating counselor, so I'm getting that sort of, I'm in the process of getting that uh, certification as well. Because I love marrying um, philosophies. And so I love the mindfulness piece, right? Mindfulness is just this concept of, <laughs> I say that just, it's really pretty expansive. It's paying attention to what's going on in you and around you at any given moment without judgment and without expectation. And so that can be really hard to do, right? To like just be aware of how we're feeling or thinking or anything that's going on around us without any kind of judgment or expectation, right? Like this morning, I certainly didn't expect to burn my, my chin but I had to let go of the judgment of like, oh, that's the thing that people are gonna be focusing on. It's like, no, they're gonna be focusing on the information that you're giving instead of the singe mark on your chin, like let it go. <laughs> so mindfulness is just paying attention to what's going on around you and through you. So we're gonna do just a really quick little practice, all right? So I want everyone to close their eyes and put your feet firmly on the ground Podcasters, if you're driving, don't do this. Hit the pause button. Don't do this while you're driving, please. So I want you to just sit in your chair, and I want you to close your eyes. We're going to tune in to the bottom of our feet. And I want you to think about how your feet feel in your shoes. How do your toes feel? Are your shoes comfortable? Are they, you know, have you been walking a lot this morning? How do your feet feel right now in the moment? And actually, I want y'all to thank your feet because they carried y'all here today. So give a big warm applause to your feet and your toes. Thank you for moving me through life without awareness or appreciation. And now I want you to move up to your calves 
or th uh, calves and shins. And so just kind of move your, your toe, like your ankle, uh, your heels up and down. So I want you to connect to your ankles right now. Ankles and calves and shins. So how does it feel to move your feet? Are your, did you do a, you know, crush a workout yesterday? Are your calves kind of tight? Like how do they feel right now in this very moment? And then I want you to move up to your knees and your thighs and hamstrings. And that, and our, and how does it feel to sit in your chair? How does that hiney feel? Are you laughing because I use the word hiney? So just be aware of what you're thinking about. Like, how does it feel to sit in the chair? Is the chair comfortable? Is it uncomfortable? Are you seated with a, you know, with your spine erect? Or is it like, are you crouched over a little bit? Like, where are you in time and space right now in your body? And now, I want you to place your hands on your belly. What are you thinking about when I ask you to do that? Is there any judgment? Is there any shame? Is there any like, ugh, I hate this part of my body? What are you thinking about? Are you focusing on the food that you're digesting? Can you feel the food that you ate or didn't eat? What's going on with that belly? And I want you to give it some appreciation and some kindness and some attention right now. Say, thank you, belly, for all that you do. Even when I stress you out and overeat or don't eat enough or eat the wrong foods that don't feel good in you, I want you to know that I love you and appreciate you for all the work that you always do. You always show up when I need you. And I'm super, super grateful for that. And I want you to take a deep breath in and exhale. And just think about what you were thinking about when we connected with that part of your body. And now I want you to move your hands up to your heart. And your heart is on the left side of your body, right above the chest, or the breast, the left breast. And so I want you to connect to feeling your heartbeat. What does that feel like? Did y'all know that we are in a heart year, a heartfelt year? So if anyone's into numerology, 2020 is a four, and four is for the fourth chakra, or the energy center in the body, is the heart. So we're in a very powerful new decade, a very powerful year, and it's important for us to connect to our heartfelt desires and, leading, and letting our heart lead our way this year. And so how does that heart feel? Can you feel it beating? Did you know your heart shows up for you every time you need it? And we probably don't even really give it much attention unless it hurts or we've had heartbreak or it's racing or if we're exercising. So just tune into that heart and give it some love and appreciation for the, you're, you, you essentially will pump two oil tankers worth of blood in your lifetime. That's crazy. Your heart works so hard, so give it some appreciation and love. And now I want you to move up to your face. You don't have to put your hands on your face, sorry. <laughs> but just 
tune into how your lips feel, how your nose feels, how your eyes feel closed. And by the way, you use all of those senses when you eat. 40% of your experience with food, 40% is through the eyes. And so if we're not paying attention with our eyes, we're really missing out on a big part of our eating experience and the pleasure of food. So just think about how it feels to have air go through your nose, filling up your lungs. When you tune into your breath, that can absolutely indicate where your stress levels and your emotional state is at any time. So it's a really, really easy exercise to do is just to tune into your breath, which is why breath work was so important and, and powerful. All right, now I want you to move into your brain. How does the brain feel? Is it tired? Is it stimulated? Is it, what is it thinking about right now? No judgment. You might be thinking, have you ever listened to a podcast and you don't like the, the person's voice? It's really hard to listen to the podcast when you don't like that voice. No judgment. You might not like my voice. That's okay. But just pay attention to what you're thinking about. Are you excited about the information that we're going to talk about today? Are you tired? Did you come here out of obligation for someone? No judgment. Just think about what you're thinking about. And then I just want you to take a big inhale and exhale at your own pace. And then slowly, slowly open your eyes and come back into the room. How does everyone feel? So that's mindfulness, right? We were tuning into our body to be aware and pay attention to what's going on inside of us. And the other thing that you can do with your eyes closed or open, is you can just pay attention to how, this, how the air feels on your skin. How the noise, you know, what the noise sounds like. You know, just paying attention to your senses, like temperature and sound can really help you stay mindful. And so one of the things that's um, important with intuitive eating and mindful eating as well is this concept called interceptive awareness. And essentially what interceptive awareness is, is being able to tune in to the physical sensations of your body. And I know everybody knows this because we all know what it feels like when we have to go to the bathroom. Anybody unaware and says, oh, whoops, I forgot to pee today. No, we know. We listen to those physical sensations from our body. And we also, hopefully everyone knows what it feels like to be hungry or what it feels like to be full, or what it feels like to be tired, or stressed, or overwhelmed. And so those physical sensations that pop up in the body are what's called interceptive awareness. And we, we use that as a guide to help us with our eating, which is so great, right? Now the challenge is with diets, um, diets disconnect us from our interceptive awareness of hunger. Has anyone ever been on a diet? Right? Lots. I, I've, I dieted for 
oh my gosh, uh, over 20 years of my life, I got sucked into diet culture. And this belief, someone else's belief, that my body had to look a certain way. And, and you, it's very easy to get programmed and to believe that your body, where it is right now in time and space, is not good enough. If you read you know, certain um, women's health magazines or men's health magazines, or if you listen to the media, or if you listen to doctors, no, no offense to any of them, but your body, exactly where it is right now, is perfect. Tune in to how that feels to hear me say that. Are you saying, oh yeah, that's BS? Or are you like, yeah, actually, I like the way that feels. That feels good. I like the way that feels to hear someone say, my body is exactly as it's supposed to be right now. Now that doesn't mean if you want to change your body in any way, if you want to lose weight, or if you want to become more muscular, or if you, you know, you can't really make yourself taller or shorter. I mean, you can with your shoes, but like we, we don't have stretching machines, thank goodness. We, we, can't, we can't alter our height, but we, we can make changes to the size or shape of our body if we want, and there's no shame in that. But where the shame can start to come in is if we feel like, where we are right now isn't good enough based on someone else's beliefs, right? So we have to look at that. Like, what is guiding our decisions and the way we view our body? Is it someone else's perspective or is it our own? You know, I have a lot of clients that come to me and they say the same thing. I hear this a lot. I don't know why I started dieting when I was younger, because I look back at pictures of myself and I don't know what I was thinking. I can't tell, I mean, I would say 75% of my clients, that is like what I hear, it's a repeat loop. And I felt the same way. I started experimenting with diets when I was 16. I had no reason to do it other than my, the group that I was hanging out with crazy 16-year-old girls thought like we needed to diet because we saw all of our, you know, we saw a parent who was doing it. And so you just, you wanna grow up and, you know, think, okay, like this is just what adults do, right? Like we drink coffee, because that's what adults do. Which, by the way, doesn't work in my body, but I'll get into that. It's, you, you have to think about what works best for you, right? So experimenting with diets at the age of 16, the reason diets fail, and here's, the interesting, here's an interesting statistic, by the way. 95% of the people who go on a diet will gain the weight back and or more in five years' time. And I worked in bariatric surgery, and I saw this happen the majority of the time. And then people felt like, oh my gosh, like I must have a problem with food because I even had surgery, and you know, cut my stomach down by 75% and I still can't get my act together with food. When we restrict, the, the problem is the architecture of diets. The restrictive nature of diets, because we're taking away our favorite food and the things that give us pleasure and that we enjoy, when we take away those things, that causes us to be obsessed about them or think about it a lot, if you don't like that word obsessed. <coughs> so one of the things, you know, you have to kind of look back at where the problems started. And so, I apologize if this is TMI for me, 
I was eating food. So I, I probably had undiagnosed issues at birth. I remember my mom telling me all kinds of crazy stories. And um, I always had GI issues, and I was eating foods that were just not aligned with my body. And now I know exactly what those foods are. And it's not that I never, ever eat them. I just eat them in very, very small portion sizes, and I know what's, what the possibility what's going to happen. And then I make the mindful or conscious decision in the moment, like, hey, you know what's going to happen here? Are you cool with that? And I'm like, yeah, it, this is, yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Where it can be confusing is when you make those decisions and you feel out of, you feel powerless to them, right? Like the food has power over you. So I went through that phase where I was eating foods that weren't aligned with my body. And what can happen when you eat foods that cause inflammation is you have, so in your, in your, your stomach, in your belly, you have one cell wall that lines the entire, the entire belly, right? So it's, it's your endothelial cells. And they are like bricks. They're stuck together very tight because they're trying to make sure that the contents of your food, like everything that's in your stomach, is staying in the stomach for digestion and not going into other parts of the body. The problem with inflammation, and when we eat foods that aren't aligned with our body, that, that inflammatory process causes those cells to separate. And now, with that opening, they're supposed to be, you know, they're like bricks. They're the cells are supposed to be like bricks, tightly formed together. Now when they're open, protein molecules can float into the bloodstream and cause issues. Then the body's like, this is not supposed to be here. What is, what is this protein molecule doing in this part of the body? And then the immune system can set off, you know, a whole host of reactions, and that can cause a lot of issues. Um, I think we're kind of seeing a rise of autoimmune disease diagnoses because doctors, we don't know if it's an autoimmune condition, but we're kind of lumping people into that category like we did back in the 60s with hypoglycemia. We just, we really don't know what's going on. Now, I'm a classically trained dietitian, so I'm always going to, you know, default to food and see if there's anything that you're eating in your diet that possibly is a problem, which is exactly what happened to me. So I'm eating all these foods, getting chronically sick, bronchitis, bronchial pneumonia, strep throat all the time. I mean, as soon as someone said strep throat, I had it. Scarlet fever, you're only supposed to have it once. I've had it twice. The second time was a very, it was, it was, it was scarlet fever. I still have the like scar marks on my throat. But what, I, what was happening is my body was letting me know like, hey, we're not happy. And in my case, it was related to the food I was eating. And so unfortunately, when you're chronically sick, what are you taking? Antibiotics. And antibiotics disrupt the gut bacteria, your gut microbiome, the, all the bugs that are in your gut. We know that now. Back then, we didn't know that. So chronic intake of you know, um, antibiotics, this can happen from taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can disrupt your gut bacteria. Uh, proton pump inhibitors or anything for, you know, there's so many, there's, there's a lot of pharmaceuticals that just disrupt the gut bacteria. And now we know there's actually research and science that shows that trauma, did y'all know this? Trauma and stress can shift your, back, your gut bacteria. Isn't that crazy? But it makes a lot of sense because we have this really, really powerful nerve that runs from the belly to the brain called the vagus nerve. And 90% of the transmission, so nine times out of 10, that vagus nerve is fr coming from the belly to the brain and saying, hey, I'm not happy. 
So what do you think was happening in my body when I'm eating these foods that's causing inflammation, these protein molecules are going into my bloodstream? Do you think my body's like, hey, you think my belly is giving messages to my brain that everything's cool and copacetic? No, no way. And so then eventually what happens is because that gut bacteria can get unbalanced, I had intense sugar cravings. Crazy, crazy. I mean, I could write a book on, on sugar. Lord have mercy. I don't even know if I should tell y'all this. Oh my gosh, this is kind of shameful. All right, I'm gonna tell y'all. I'm gonna tell y'all a secret. Because I think people can relate to this. So I never thought I would be able to have a balanced relationship with sugar, which by the way, I do now. It's, it, it blows my mind away, because if you told me that 20 years ago, I never would have believed it, that I could have a balanced relationship with food. And this is why. I felt so out of control with it that I had to cut it out for th three years. Psycho, right? I cut out sugar for three years of my life. And I also, you know, was, uh, I went the vegan route because I was trying to figure out my GI issues. I went the, um, I was plant-based for, very devoutly raw plant-based because I was just, and, and I understand why people do these things because they don't feel good. They're trying to figure out what's going on with their body. Their doctor might not be well-versed with you know, the effects that nutrition has on their body. And so you're just trying to, like, you know, my favorite phrase in the whole wide world is a Greek axiom, know thyself. Knowledge about yourself is power. Your doctor is not responsible for understanding your body. He can explain you know, lab values, and, but you are responsible for your body. Um, so I love know thyself. I started to know myself with sugar. I gave it up for three years, and then one day, I, I threw a big birthday party for my brother. I didn't even ask him what his favorite cake was. Do you know what cake I bought? Remember, I hadn't eaten sweets in three years. I mean, I had dates and like fruit, because that was allowed as a raw foodist, but I did not eat anything that was processed or any sugar or anything like that for three years. And so when it came time to plan this big party, I was like, I'm getting a chocolate cake with buttercream frosting. Because that's my favorite. That's my favorite. Oh yeah, and by the way, my body is really not a huge fan of dairy, but I didn't care. So, bought this cake, and I don't, like I remember the party, <coughs> This is the part about food and dieting that can really kind of steal parts of your life and why mindfulness and, and reconnecting to intuitive eating can help you connect to why you do what you do with what you do with food. So I remember parts of the party, there was alcohol involved, which lowers your ability to make decisions. And I love champagne, by the way, so I'm not judgmental at all, but you just have to know thyself. And I finally had a piece of cake. Y'all, I hadn't eaten sugar in three years. I told y'all that, yeah, so. Can I just tell you that that was like the best and worst thing I ever had in my life? It was so good, but then I felt so bad about myself. And I don't remember any of the conversations that took place at my brother's big birthday party that I threw for him in honor of him because I love him dearly. He's one of the best humans on the planet. And I was obsessed with one thing, getting more cake. 
I was like a sugar sniper. I was just like, how can I get more cake without anyone knowing? Because everyone knew that I was like, I had this title around food and I didn't eat certain foods. And I was just obsessed. Sugar, sugar. I was like surveying the p like everywhere in the party and I was like, okay, how do I go get more sugar? How do I get my crack? How do I go get more of this cake without anybody judging me? And it didn't happen that night. But the next morning when I woke up, do y'all want to know the first thing I was thinking about? Cake. Crack. Sugar. It was crazy. And my whole family, we can laugh about this now. Like, we actually laugh about this now. Like, how it was so profound in my life and that was actually a big turning point for me where I realized, I'm like, I have got to get a better grip on my relationship with food. I'm like, I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life where I'm in a social environment with the people I love the most and all I am thinking about is scoring food. Like, that felt so shameful to me. And now, it, now it's like we can laugh about it, which is great. But in the moment, it was horrifying. It was horrifying. And I can't remember the last time I woke up and I was like, cake, except for that morning. Isn't that funny? So anyway, okay, now you all know my shame. <laughs> um, and no shame. I mean, no shame in my game. I, uh, whatever. It's food. And that's the nice thing about mindful and intuitive eating is you really start to shift your perspective on food and you realize that it's just food, right? There doesn't have to be this moralistic energy around our food. And dieting teaches us to categorize food as either good or bad, right? Like what would y'all say about fried chicken? Bad, right? What about baked skinless chicken? Oh, that's good. Well, guess what? If you're a vegan, neither one is good because you're eating an animal, right? So it really just depends on where your mindset is. Because when I was a vegan, I was like, mm -mm, no animals. I was like, no, no. And I mean, in full disclosure, I watched a 2020 episode. They like, took hidden cameras into a chicken coop. And when I saw the treatment of these animals, it just, blazed this memory in my mind and I'm like I can't contribute to I can't contribute to that and I'm not I'm not saying that everyone has to go watch this and have the same impact but it just it just it shifted something for me and and that's when and, and, and I understand why when people start becoming educated on how the energy of food right like to me, that these animals were sitting in their own filth and that they had to tell people, like, the meat is bleached to get rid of the, the like, stains. I was like, oh my God, I, I don't know that I wanna contribute to that or put that in my body. I don't know if that's the case now, Pro I don't know. I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm going like down a little bit of a vegan rabbit hole, but my point is, is that you wanna be very intentional about the types of foods that you put into your body and just focus on like, how does food make you feel? 
The way to make peace with food is to just connect the dots between how it makes you feel. So I didn't like the way being a sugar sniper felt, right? I felt like I was really missing out on life because I was so obsessed with getting more of this crack. And by the way, once I got my gut bacteria back in balance, which you can if you've you know, suffered from trauma or stress or an, you know, taken pharmaceuticals or you know, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, anything that is going to disrupt that delicate balance in your gut, once you get that rebalanced, then that vagus nerve is communicating properly to the brain because we make decisions based on what we're thinking about. Right? Does anyone ever just kind of like, well, I don't know why I made that decision. Well, sometimes, that's okay. But most of the time, we're making decisions based on how we're feeling. Right? Remember we talked a little bit about the interceptive awareness? So what would be a decision that would be interceptive awareness based around food? Hunger. If you're feeling hungry, then you're like, wow, I probably need to eat. And one of the things that I love about the mindfulness piece is that because you're paying attention to the sensations that are going on in and around you before, during, and after you eat, what I recognized for me is that I prefer to eat foods that are very high vibrational, right? So foods that give me energy instead of taking it away or making me become obsessed with, with a food. I, I just didn't, I, I felt like powerless over food. I didn't like that feeling. And so I was like, let me find the foods that feel good in my body, that work for me, that give me the energy that I want to get through my day. And so when I say high vibrational foods, let's take a, let's, we'll take a step back into um, biology. Do y'all remember um, photosynthesis? Right? So it's the sun energy transferring into the plant. And then when you eat that plant, so that energy is stored in their cell walls. And so when you break down that fiber, you're releasing that energy. And then there's an energy transfer into your body. And so one of the reasons I was so, you know, really, really got heavy into the raw food movement was because I was hyper energized. Like eating plants, if you, if you tend to not have a lot of energy, that's one way that you can increase your energy. And I'm not saying everyone has to only eat plants, but you can start, you can start just evaluating how food makes you feel. And so I, I, got, I like love that feeling. I love that feeling of how plants feel in my body. And so that's why I call it more of like I... I don't like to put labels on myself anymore as far as like diets and I don't like my clients to do that either because I think we're all just an experiment in the process, right? So it's more like, let me just see how food feels because I know how sugar feels in my body. I still eat it. I know how too much champagne feels in my body. I still drink it, but I just don't do it excessively like I may have, like I may have done in the past because rem you remember the feelings does anyone remember how they felt on Thanksgiving? Right? Do you keep repeating that pattern every day? No, right? Why? Because it just doesn't feel great. That's the interceptive awareness. That's your intuitive wisdom telling you like, yeah, this doesn't feel great. I mean, recently when I was on vacation during the holidays, I recognized like I love eating like really good decadent food 
But we discovered we can only do that for about two days, two nights in a row. And then about the third night, we're like, ugh, let's just kind of take a break from all this heavy food. Because it just, like the first night, we're like, woo, this tastes great and amazing. And then the second night, we're like, yeah, this is still great and amazing. And by the third night, we've burned out on it. And so that's what, that, this, is, this is the principle of why diets don't work. They're not sustainable because you're removing all the foods that, that give you pleasure. But if you pay attention to how it feels in your body mindfully, you'll be able to find what I call the sweet spot with food, with every food. For me, that included sugar. Amazing. Like if 20 years ago, the 20 years ago me could see the 20 years forward me now, I would have been like, no way. That's, there's no way, that's crazy. I, couldn't, I wouldn't have even been able to wrap my brain around the relationship that you can have with food. It's, it's insane. So one of the principles of intuitive eating that's super important is finding satisfaction with your food. Um, and we, you know, if we, the reason why dieting does, isn't sustainable is because you're taking away your favorite foods you're listening to an outside authority that's not internal, and you don't trust yourself. That's what I hear from clients all the time. They're like, I just don't trust myself around this food. And I remember it well, because I didn't trust myself around sugar, so I gave it up for three years. But the problem is, is when we restrict ourselves, it can cause us to go in the other direction, right? It can cause us to go in the other direction. And that's just, that's the way our brain is hardwired. Have y'all ever, like if we had a little baby in here and there were 20 things on the floor, but we wanted to take, we're like, oh no, don't take that crystal. Guess what? It doesn't matter that there's 19 other things on the ground for that baby to play with. What do they want? The thing that we took away. It's just, it's just the way we're hardwired. But here's the good news and here's the empowering news. Your brain is plastic. And it, 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 which means it has, not plastic like, you know, Tupperware, but it's, it's very plastic and moldable. So there's this, there's this emerging science that's awesome right now called neuroplasticity. Neuro is just the brain. So your brain is plastic. So you have the ability to change the way your relationship with food is or the relationship that you have with your body. You have the ability to change that. But what can happen is, these patterns in our brain, these neural networks, they can tend to get very strong. And I bet like the strongest one that most people have is, the, what's the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning? If you have good oral hygiene, I should say, is you brush your teeth, right? I mean, like that's what most people do. They get up and they brush their teeth. I'm a big fan of drinking a lot of water first thing in the morning because you know I haven't had any in the night. Sometimes I do if I get up in the middle of the night. Um, but we have these, these things that we don't, these habits that we don't even have to think about, right? It's just like instantaneous. And so you can start to have that with mindful and intuitive eating as well, especially when you just focus on, well, how does this food make me feel? You know, the, the beauty of going down this journey of finding the foods that feel good in your body and finding your sweet spot is that you don't deprive yourself of your favorite foods. You find the amounts that feel good and don't make you feel guilty. And then you just move on with your life. Like you don't drag the meal that you had 
from a week ago, like, you know, that you were bad or feeling guilty about, you don't drag that through the rest of your, your life. Like, you eat and you move on with your life. But dieting teaches us to feel bad about the portion sizes that we eat or the types of food that we eat. Does anyone feel that, that way, right? Like, oh, I feel like I couldn't believe, I, I had someone say, I was really bad today. And I'm like, did you kill someone? Did you rob a bank? People, I'm gonna make a, I'm not gonna make friends right now. Did you vote for Trump? Just kidding. Um, like, what did you do that was bad? Actually, you know what? I'm going to take a step back. I'm very grateful for President Trump because he has raised and elevated the consciousness of women, and that's why there is such a strong feminist movement that has been going on during his presidency. The Me Too, Time's Up, Body Positivity, Health at Every Size, AKA H-A-E-S. Women are taking back their right to have a body that is aligned with their belief system instead of somebody else's. So I wanted to, I, I'm sorry, I'm gonna go off just on a quick little tangent. In Victorian times, women's bodies that were more voluptuous were actually seen as, were highly regarded. And women who were very thin and frail were looked down upon because they were the workers. So it was a status thing to have a more, you know, meaty body because that meant that your husband was extremely affluent. And so it's, what happened is in 1863, there was the, um, William Banting was the funeral director for British royalty. And he struggled with his weight for most of his life and felt the weight bias and the weight stigma and the weight discrimination that can happen from society. And he was super frustrated. He went and approached a bunch of doctors. He was like, I, I need y'all to put me on a restrictive something. I need to get this weight off of me. I, I don't like the way I feel in my body. So he, he interviewed tons of doctors. None of them would do what he wanted to do. And so he finally found some doctor who put him on an experimental plan. Y'all, this is how, this is how diets began. He, um, during the, during this time, we, there were, can you imagine this? There was this, there was actually a time in life in human evolution where people did not step on a scale. Let that sink in. There was a time where people never weighed themselves. They didn't care. They did not care. I, I'm like, oh my God, I want to go back to that time. That sounds, that sounds really peaceful. No Instagram either. Like how lovely. Um, but so he obsessively weighed himself every day and tracked that metric. And then he wrote this, uh, letter to, it, it was, it, I think it was entitled letter, letter to corpulence, um, a note to society, uh, a note to the public. So you can look this up on Google. It was, um, William Banting, 1863. And that caught a lot of attention. It was actually the very first diet book, and I'm putting diet book in air quotes, podcasters. Um, so the very first diet book, and guess what the doctor put him on? Do you have any idea what kind of diet he went on? See if this sounds familiar. Low carb, high protein, high fat. <gasps> I've never even heard of that before. How revolutionary. 
So, but, but let me, there's a caveat to this. He also recommended five to six alcoholic beverages a day. <laughs> Doesn't sound super low carb to me. Sorry, what we know about alcohol now, uh, yeah. Sounds like a recipe for cirrhosis of the liver, right? What we know now, like that is, is I would, I, as a dietitian, I could never recommend that to someone. I don't even recommend dieting. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's insane. So this diet caught wild, you know, caught like wildfire in, in Britain and the US. And that's when we first, that was the first diet that was ever created. And so then what happened with the like scale, you know, then all of a sudden people started, they, um, people started using like, cause scales were only used for industrial purposes back in the late, you know, in the 1800s and like forever. Like that, that's all it was weighed for. Like, okay, the, this cow weighs this much. Here's our exchange. The, this is how much food, you know, like it was used for industrial purposes. And so because of his book and because he was tracking his metrics daily, then at county fairs, people would like come up and hey, let's guess your weight. And like people would step on the scale and it was like this, you know, interesting kind of, let me, have y'all ever seen those? Like, let me guess your weight kind of things, right? So that's how the obsession with the scale started. My belief is, if aliens came to this planet, and that was the only metric they were tracking with humans, like this fascination with this piece of metal that like spits out a number, and it can either make or break someone's day, they would fly away. They'd be like, these people are crazy. Like, how is it that someone's entire day and the way they dress, have y'all ever like stepped on the scale and it was naughty? And then you like looked at your closet and you're like, well, how do I dress so that it doesn't look like what the scale told me I am? My self-worth is attached to what the scale told me today. Ugh. Ugh. I'm having a visceral reaction to this right now, podcasters, because <laughs> I remember that well. Oh my God, the time evaporated. I had to actually add in an extra 20 minutes in the morning when I was you know, obsessed with dieting and unhappy with my body that I would, I would need that kind of buffer in the morning. And men, y'all may not relate to this, but women, we, this is our struggle. For women who have dieted, like we had to add in some time during our morning to kind of like feel good about ourselves and like put on clothes. I know I can't be the only person because I hear laughter in the audience. So this is, this is, you know, this is what dieting can do to you and the shame that the diet industry, or now it's called the wellness industry, right? And even Weight Watchers is changing their name. They've, they're rebranding. They're called WW. And I'm really not happy with them. I'm not going to, I'm not going to jump on that train, but for like one sentence, they are actually targeting eight-year-olds now, lifers, to like hook them into dieting and they've got apps and th they've been blasted by a lot of intentional, mindful and intuitive eating dietitians and healthcare professionals. Because does, a, does an eight year old need to obsess about that? Oh my gosh, y'all, let's not steal their, let's not steal their life. Like, okay, sorry, I, that was longer than one sentence. I lied, I lied. All right, so where was I? We were talking about William Banting and this obsession and the aliens coming here and being like, what are they doing with that scale? 
So that's why, that's how this the obsession with this scale started back in late 1800s. And, and actually what happened is it was so profitable, they were called penny scales, it was so profitable for these people to have scales because they would make so much money by everyone just paying a penny to step on this scale that then they started to create metrics for, for human for humans, right? Because they were really more for industrial purposes, and so now then they created them for humans. And so now, I mean, how many people have a scale in their house? I still do. I don't, it, it's, it collects dust. Sometimes I look at it and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember you. And, and it, it can be, I, I won't lie, when you're, when you're going through your mindful and intuitive eating journey, Remember how we talked about the neural pathways in the brain, right? The really, really strong relationship with just kind of going on autopilot. What I would hear from a lot of clients is, I wake up in the morning, I go to the bathroom, I step on the scale, um, and then my day is dictated based on that number. So it, it can, because that is so programmed, it can take extra energy and thought to not do that behavior anymore because it can be so ingrained. So we have to, we have to kind of think about, um, yeah, that approach. So I think the most, imp the mo the, like the takeaway message from today for you guys is really thinking about how food makes you feel. You know, you can incorporate the, the, the mindfulness is super easy, not really. Initially it's hard because it takes extra effort to think about it, right? Because it's not, it's not necessarily a pattern that you've been, that we've been taught to do as children and, and, and by the way, we were all born intuitive eaters. Since I brought up like, you know, us being children. Think about, do, can y'all think about anyone in your life? It may be a sibling, it might be a family member, it could be a best friend, it could be a colleague, it could be, you know, just anyone who has never struggled with dieting, they have a positive body image, they don't have an issue with food. I mean, they just eat and they move on with their life. So it's important to kind of find those people and talk to them about their relationship with food because that's more important than, you know, getting sucked into diet and wellness culture because it's, it's, it's toxic, it's abusive, and it's unsustainable. I mean, when we really think about the, you know, 95% of people who go on diets gain it back in, you know, five years, I think the reframe is that diets fail 95% of the time. 95% of the time, it's the diets that fail the people who do them. And that, that sounds like a little bit of a, a different way of looking at it, but it's really important because it's taking you out of the equation. Instead of pointing at yourself and saying, I'm the reason I failed on this diet, my neighbor did it and she did fine, now it's like, oh, the diet and the restrictedness of a diet is what failed. Because it, remember, if we restrict our favorite foods, enter in an emotion, a trigger, uh, you know, a heated conversation, your boss, you know, wh whatever. Like, just enter in an emotion that gets triggered that doesn't feel good in your body. And if we don't have the capacity to, to override that sensation, it's very easy to use food as a soothing mechanism, as a coping tool. And, there's, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I still allow myself to emotionally eat. The difference is it's, it's very mindful. 
and I'm I am I'm, I'm, I intentionally I'm like, oh, do you want some comfort food right now? Okay, well, like, how do you feel? Like, do you you're not hungry? Do you still want to eat? Okay, well, then I might not eat that much. But essentially, what you're doing is you're just you're scratching that food itch. You're allowing yourself to have those forbidden foods, and diets fail because they don't allow us to do that. And then because of that restrictive nature, because we're so focused on, you know, changing the shape of our body, we feel like a failure. And then we overeat, and we're like, like me with the cake, I was like, well, I better get it in now because come Monday, I won't get any of this anymore. But if you all, here's the, here's the interesting thing about intuitive eating, it's the, it's the permission paradox if you allow yourself to eat those foods that you feel you don't have control over, eventually you will find your sweet spot with that food. And especially if you're paying attention to how food physically feels in your body, then you will make decisions aligned with what, most of the time, what feels good versus what feels bad. So I'll give you an example. Like a sleeve of Oreos, I would guess doesn't feel fabulous in most people's body. An entire gallon of ice cream or, you know, three hamburgers and french fries. I mean, I know I'm throwing out some, like, it, it doesn't even matter. Like, all you're trying to do is find your sweet spot with that food, like the middle ground between restricting and overeating. And so when you find that sweet spot with food, you find balance. You find a much more balanced approach to eating, and you don't feel like you're missing out on life. And then you're not just, you know, when you spend time with people, you're not focusing on like, well, how do I look? Comparing myself to others. You're just like, you're there and you're present. And you're enjoying the conversations. And you're not being like the sugar sniper like I was, where I was just like, one thing on my mind. Who's talking to me? I had family members that flew in from out of town. All my family and friends were there. And uh, what do I remember about it? Being obsessed about cake. Oh my God. How long do we live like that? So if you focus on how food makes you feel, even with the foods that you feel like you have, that have no power over you, you will get to a point where you're able to find balance with everything. Now I will say it's a journey. It takes time. It doesn't have the false belief or the false hopes of a diet like, oh, lose, you know, I'll lose 30 pounds in, you know, 30 days. I mean, I'm just saying that because that's like a, a popular thing that I see on the, all over the internet. But with mindful and intuitive eating, no one knows whether you're going to gain weight or lose weight. Like, a, a, as, a, as a practitioner, I have no idea. I can't guarantee that I, like when, I, when I used to put people on diets, that was the metric that I used to use. Okay, let's jump on the scale. And it was horrifying if people didn't lose enough weight. In fact, in bariatric surgery, what was so sad to me is if someone needed to lose 150 pounds, you know, based on the surgery and, you know, if they lost 100 pounds, they saw that as a failure because they didn't get to 150. Isn't that sad? Like they didn't see that as progress. And so what would happen is because they felt like a failure, remember your emotions are gonna drive your actions especially around food. So if you felt like a failure, then you're like, well, what am I doing this for? I may as well give up. I may as well go eat the foods that I love because even if I restrict myself, it doesn't matter. 
And so you have to think about what's going on up here. You know, Dr. Brene Brown, who I love, she talks about your emotions being in the driver's seat of your actions. And so when you start tuning in to your emotions and how you feel, then that can absolutely have an impact on the way you eat. And so my last tip for y'all is just find some peace around food. It's just food. I know it can feel big and scary. And the media is super confusing because there's always coming out with these sensationalized reports of, you know, eggs are good, eggs are bad, eggs are back. Butter was bad, butter was butter, right? I mean, I remember the days when, you know, I loved McDonald's french fries. And then once I just, you know, or even Chick-fil-A. Like my niece loves Chick-fil-A. And I, ha and I love their waffle fries, but I had three bites and my body was like, eh-eh. And I was like, okay, sorry. Let's go find some french fries at work with you. Right, so you can, you can have everything. There's no, that's, the, that's the nice thing about mindful eating is that, and intuitive eating, is you find the satisfaction factor with your food and you don't allow it to just consume your entire life, right? And so I hope y'all make peace with food this year because it really is a heart-centered year. And more importantly, from a planetary perspective this year, it's all about making change without the struggle. And dieting will definitely set you up for struggling. And if you invest your energy towards mindful and intuitive eating, it's a sustainable way to make peace with food. So thank you. Do y'all have any questions? Do we have any questions? This awesome, Courtney. Okay, good question. So podcasters, um, the question was an app, an app to, you know, track how food makes you feel. So you can, okay, so like on my, on my electronic medical record system that I work with clients, it does ask you how you feel. Are you happy? Are you stressed? Are you, I think the CARA app actually does. So C-A-R-A, -A, and it's actually a, a, a tracking app for IBS that I use with a lot of clients with GI issues, um, but you can track all kinds of cool metrics with the CARA app. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think you bring up an important point that um, you have to pay attention to the things that feel triggering, right? Because it's different for everybody. I had um, one client recently who uh, who felt very weight shamed by um, her healthcare practitioner. And actually I had a client even more recently, and I hear this all the time, unfortunately, uh, that get weight shamed in their appointments. And it's, it's really, here's what I think is more important, looking at your blood. The blood doesn't lie. If your cholesterol levels are balanced, if your blood sugar is in a good place, um, if you have diabetes in the family and your A1C levels are fine, your hemoglobin A1C is just a measure of how well you've been managing your blood sugars for the past three months. If all the metrics with your blood look good 
and the only thing is that you are falling out of like the BMI scale. I mean, let me tell you something. All the athletes who are playing in the Super Bowl today, by the way, would be over the charts on the BMI scale. They would be classified as obese. Now, we can't look at them as obese if they have like super low body fat and they're all muscle. So the metrics that we have are very outdated. They need to be updated. And we have to take into consideration that there are some people based on their DNA and their genetics that are going to naturally present in a larger body. And we can't, I mean, like you can go into all different parts of the world. There are some parts of the world where people just are in larger bodies. There are some parts of the world where, where they're just in smaller bodies. And like we have to let go of this belief that you're only good if you look a certain way and you're only good if you eat a certain way. Like the morality value of like being good and bad. Like that's why I said like I, I loved this Instagram post. It said, um, you know, oh, you know, I was bad because I ate, you know, two pieces of cake. And the woman was saying to her friend, like, well, gosh, Susan, you didn't burn down an orphanage. You had a couple pieces of cake. Like, we really have to take away the moralistic principle around being good and bad because food is just food. Food is food. You can use it however you want. How I prefer to use it is like to give me energy and make me feel good in my body because I'm just very sensitive to, to, to chemicals in the way like I just, I, have a, I just have a sensitive system. And so I honor that and work with that. Other people don't. And they can, like my sister, she can eat anything. She's my intuitive eater in the family who I've always looked for, looked towards. I mean, growing up, my mom would make homemade cookies like fresh out of the oven. And my brother and I are like, like, you know, circling in the kitchen, like, oh my God, I can't wait to eat these cookies. My sister would eat half. My sister would eat half by the time I had like shoved three in my mouth. And she would put it down on the counter and go like, I'm full. That was bizarre to me. I had no idea. But like she, she has always been such an intuitive eater. If she overeats at a meal, then she might skip a meal or she might eat something smaller. Like it just, she's very, very intuitive based. And you can see this with kids too. They just, you know, before they become conditioned to have question marks about their body or their food or before they're shamed, they just eat intuitively and naturally. So any other questions? I know I answered that very longly. Right. Oh my God. Such a good question. So podcasters, the question is, how do we talk to children in a intuitive and mindful way that doesn't promote shame? I think a really good thing to help, um, I, I work with this with a lot of, of my clients and I help them uh, use that to say, like if they are with a healthcare practitioner who uses shaming language about their weight, um, which I've had quite a few people, you know, have to do this. You just, ha you just, you, so in that case, you just tell them, this language feels very shaming. <coughs> um, I need to, we need to take another approach because this, this doesn't feel good. And everyone understands what 
feelings are, right? I mean, we, we're human, so we know what it feels like. And if you say that to someone, like, this doesn't feel good, then that, that may trigger them, right? Because they're the authority. But <coughs> that's another discussion. From a child's perspective, you can teach them how to connect. I, I really wish I had connected too sooner how food felt in my body, right? And so I think what's important is helping them <coughs> recognize, um, first of all, we're eating too fast. And so like, it, that's really, really throwing off our digestion. And so it's important to slow down at meals, tune into your body. You can help them assess their hunger levels. You know, there's like a one through 10 hunger and fullness scale that you can teach them and help them just tune in. I mean, they're already super natural intuitive eaters as they are, but if you can help them make the connection between the foods that they're eating and how it makes them feel afterwards, then they get it. I mean, I've worked with kids before and they're just like, I don't like the way, you know, this food makes me feel. And I'm like, well then you don't have to eat it. You know, there's plenty of other foods that you can eat. Um, so I think that would be a really, really good first step is helping them make the connection with how food feels. Because I used to put myself in a sugar coma on Halloween. It never felt good. I'll tell you what sucked the most was having eight cavities one year. And having my mom take me to the dentist three, for three trips to have everything drilled on, like, that didn't feel good. Didn't feel good to her wallet either. So she bought our candy the next year. <laughs> So any other great questions? Well, y'all have been lovely. Thank you so much for coming out on this beautiful Sunday. And you can find me at uh, Nutrition Atlanta. So that's pretty easy. And I also do 30-day mindful eating challenges online. Um, I've got a little five-day bite-sized one that's coming out. And I just did an ebook of my favorite winter recipes. And a portion of the proceeds are going to a... Um, Elephant Rescue Center in Nairobi, and essentially what they do is they rescue orphaned, um, I'm very, I'm very, I love animals, by the way. Um, so these animals have been traumatized. They have PTSD because these elephants have watched their mothers die. They were killed brutally for their um, tusks, and they actually have a lot of trauma um, from watching that. Because, like, imagine being in a room and being there when your mom died, you would, be, you would be traumatized. Animals are very intelligent. Elephants are hugely intelligent. And um, so part of the proceeds for that goes to that animal rescue. And I love donating to causes that I feel really um, drawn to. And a lot of them are animal-based because I love those little furry creatures. Um, all sizes, right? But um, what else? It's been awesome. Thank you all so much for your time and attention and great energy. I hope to see you all again soon. This episode was produced by Kirsten Hedges and produced and edited by Georgie Harris. For more information, visit us at modernmysticshop.com and click on Sunday School 